On May 8, 1945, the New York Giants had the best record in Major League Baseball with 12 wins in 16 games. Films playing in American movie theaters included A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, directed by Elia Kazan, God is My Co-Pilot, starring Dennis Morgan, and Hangover Square, starring Laird Krieger, Linda Darnell, and George Sanders. Joe Rosenthal was honored with the Pulitzer Prize for Photography for his picture of the raising of the United States flag on Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima. Bold headlines in morning newspapers throughout the country announced Germany's surrender in World War II. And that night, 60 million Americans tuned in to hear On a Note of Triumph, Norman Corwin's radio masterpiece marking the end of World War II in Europe. Lauded by Carl Sandburg as one of the all-time great American poems, it was broadcast on the NBC, CBS, ABC, and Mutual radio networks. Where have you gone, Norman Corwin? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Let's start out with some basics about Norman Corwin. He was born on May 3rd, 1910, in Boston. He died on October 18th, 2011, in Los Angeles, California. He grew up in Boston. He started his professional life as a journalist. He broke into radio, reading the news, and producing poetry programs. He went to New York in the 1930s. He broadcast on WQXR and caught the attention of CBS executives who hired him in 1938, along with Orson Welles and John Houseman, to bring quality drama to the network. He never wrote an autobiography. The closest he came to that was a publication of his letters titled Norman Corwin's Letters, edited by A.J. Languth, published by Barricade Books in 1994 some 16 years before his passing. So Norman Corwin's letters is not a complete account of the life of Norman Corwin, nor is R. Leroy Bannerman's biography of Corwin. On a Note of Triumph, Norman Corwin and the Golden Years of Radio, published in 1986, nor is Eric Simonson's Academy Award-winning documentary, A Note of Triumph, The Golden Age of Norman Corwin. So there's quite a bit of material by and about Norman Corwin. He was a prolific writer, and there are books of his radio scripts and other books that he wrote over the years on a variety of topics. When Simonson did the documentary, he did an interview with HBO, 
And HBO asked the question, it seems like Norman Corwin's voice and work, despite his fame during the heyday of radio, somehow slipped through the cracks of time. How did you discover him? And Simonson replied in part, A lot of people who consider themselves really well informed about the history of radio have told me that they weren't aware of Norman Corwin or his work and were blown away that such a guy existed and that he wrote what he did at that time. Corwin is most well-known for his radio work, but that's still just the tip of the iceberg. There's film, there's television, there's the books. So I'm just getting started in exploring this very fascinating uh, American icon. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. In recent months, there have been too many instances that reflect the worst and not the best of America. It's a time when patriots must stand up and speak out. That's what Norman Corwin did throughout his career. It landed him on the pages of Red Channels and in the Radio Hall of Fame. It made him the subject of an Academy Award-winning documentary. It made him the go-to legend called upon when needed to speak about the history of radio and legends like Carl Sandburg and Orson Welles. This segment will focus on two works from the early stages of Corwin's career. They fly through the air from 1938, and we hold these truths from 1941. In 1939, Whitlessy House, a division of the McGraw-Hill Book Company, Incorporated, published Columbia Workshop Plays, 14 radio dramas selected and edited by Douglas Coulter, Assistant Director of Broadcasts, Columbia Broadcasting System, Inc., and Director of New York University Radio Workshop. In his preface, Coulter writes, One of the important things the workshop set out to do was to develop a new crop of writers who would turn out original material created specifically for the medium of radio. He mentions, among others, William N. Robeson, Irving Reese, and Norman Corwin. Introducing Corwin's They Fly Through the Air, Coulter writes, Many thousands of words have already been written in the press about this unique broadcast. Unique because it is the only radio-verse drama to have aroused an equally enthusiastic response from both the public 
and the critics. Coulter goes on to write, As poetry it is splendid, as radio it is perfect. They Fly Through the Air was presented on Corwin's poetry program, Words Without Music, on Sunday, February 19, 1939. It was presented on the Columbia Workshop several weeks later on Monday, April 10th. Benito Mussolini had been dictator of Italy for over a decade. His fascist takeover of Italy has been called an inspiration for Adolf Hitler. They Fly Through the Air was written and broadcast about 18 months before Germany, Japan, and Italy formally joined forces on September 27, 1940. In his biography of Corwin, R. Leroy Bannerman writes that Corwin was outraged and, quote, hardly disguised his feelings towards the fascists and their heartless actions of indiscriminate bombing, unquote. Corwin specifically took aim at Vittorio Mussolini, son of Benito, and a pilot who had written of the beauty of seeing his bombs burst upon Ethiopian cavalrymen below. Mussolini said, quote, It was exceptionally good fun, unquote. Bannerman says they fly through the air was a turning point in Corwin's career. By the spring of 1939, in Bannerman's words, Corwin was well-established now at the crest of the Liberal Mountain. Corwin went on to create a special series of programs under the title Pursuit of Happiness. He wrote Anne Rutledge for DuPont's Cavalcade of America, and in early 1940, Corwin began work on a breathtaking collection of radio dramas titled 26 by Corwin, and broadcast from May 4, 1941 to November 9, 1941. Corwin's work was broadcast by CBS on a sustaining basis without sponsors, and despite the accomplishment of 26 by Corwin, he was fired by the network on the grounds that it could no longer afford such programming. One door closes and another opens. William B. Lewis had hired Corwin at CBS in 1938 and then moved on to work for the U.S. government in the Office of Facts and Figures, later to become the Office of War Information. Lewis engaged Corwin to create a show commemorating the 150th anniversary of the American Bill of Rights. The show was titled We Hold These Truths. Corwin assembled an all-star cast, including Jimmy Stewart, Lionel Barrymore, Edward G. Robinson, Orson Welles, and music composed by Bernard Herrmann. On December 7, 1941, Corwin was traveling by train from Washington to Los Angeles and still writing We Hold These Truths. That evening, Screen Guild Theater on CBS was presenting a rebroadcast of Corwin's play Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. That afternoon, Americans learned that Japanese forces had bombed Pearl Harbor. Corwin contacted Lewis and asked if the December 15 show was still on. Lewis replied that, quote, We believe it is of even greater importance now than before to carry on with your Bill of Rights program. 
On December 15, 1941, We Hold These Truths was broadcast on the combined networks of CBS, NBC Red, NBC Blue, and Mutual to an audience estimated at 63 million listeners. There's a fine essay about the program by Dr. Marianne Watson at the Library of Congress website. It won the George F. Peabody Medal for Outstanding Entertainment in Drama for 1941. In 2004, it was inducted into the National Archives National Recording Registry. Every year since 2002, the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress chooses 25 recordings showcasing the range and diversity of American recorded sound heritage. The broadcast of We Hold These Truths came days after the United States entered World War II and weeks after the end of a great baseball season and the end of a baseball era. The championship of Major League Baseball hung in the balance on October 5, 1941 at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Dodgers were on the verge of a fourth game victory to level the World Series with the New York Yankees at two games each. Brooklyn was one out, one strike away from victory, when Hugh Casey's pitch got past catcher Mickey Owen to ignite a come-from-behind win for the Yankees and a crushing defeat for the Dodgers. The Yankees won the next game and had the ninth world championship in franchise history. The broadcast of that fourth game of the 1941 World Series was added to the National Recording Registry in 2003. That game was also the inspiration for Norman Corwin's Murder in Studio One, which he quickly wrote for the October 12, 1941 broadcast of 26 by Corwin. In Norman Corwin's letters, baseball is referenced on numerous occasions. In 1947, he was playing baseball, well, maybe softball, with actors, writers, and others in Griffith Park. In a 1985 letter he wrote to Tom Bradley, mayor of Los Angeles, Everyone has dreams of glory. I suppose starting at an early age, mine progressed from the dream of being a baseball star. It's fortunate for us that Corwin did not pursue that baseball dream too far and instead took his life in other directions, including his radio work, his writing, and his teaching. Corwin was related to the distinguished baseball writer Ed Lynn. Ed Lynn was a prolific baseball writer. Among his many accomplishments was to work with Bill Veck on Veck's book Veck, as in Wreck. There's a letter from Corwin to Lynn in Norman Corwin's letters dated July 20, 1988. It says in part, Dear Ed, I just finished reading a borrowed copy of one of those limited editions of a classic signed by the author, who happened to be John Updike. It's a reprint of his famous Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu piece, originally written for The New Yorker, but with the added flourish of a preface and notes. I was delighted to find that in notes two and three, Updike pays tribute to your Ted Williams book. Corwin contributed a new essay for the 2006 publication of This I Believe. This, I believe, is a wonderful concept that dates back to the 1950s 
and then was given an update with a combination of old material and new material in, in 2006. Uh, it's a book, this I believe, The Personal Philosophies of Remarkable Men and Women. And Corwin's contribution, titled Good Can Be As Communicable as Evil, begins with a baseball reference. Years ago, while watching a baseball game on television, I saw Earl Hershiser pitching for the Dodgers throw a fastball that hit a batter. The camera was on a close-up of Hershiser, and I could read his lips as he mouthed, I'm sorry. The batter, taking first base, nodded to the pitcher in a friendly way, and the game went on. Just two words, and I felt good about Hirschheiser and the batter and the game all at once. It was only a common courtesy, but it made an impression striking enough for me to remember after many summers. The essay concludes with a brief few sentences about Norman Corwin, his 1945 production on a note of triumph, is considered a radio masterpiece. And it concludes, His living room holds broadcast memorabilia alongside his baseball souvenirs. After a short break, Where Have You Gone, Norman Corwin will continue, and I'll be joined by educator and author Neil Verma. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. Welcome back to Where Have You Gone, Norman Corwin. I'm joined now by Neil Verma, Assistant Professor of Sound Studies at Northwestern University, author of Theater of the Mind. Imagination, Aesthetics, and American Radio Drama, and co-editor of Anatomy of Sound, Norman Corwin, and Media Authorship. Hi, Neil. Thanks for joining me to talk about Norman Corwin. Do you recall how you first became aware of Corwin's work? Yes. Um, so uh, in 2005, I started doing research into uh, what was is usually called old time radio, but I, I prefer calling classical radio. Uh, and at that time, I was really interested in suspense serials from the 1940s. Um, and what I started to do was uh, I started to read broadly uh, both secondary and primary literature from the period. So that's uh, some of the biographies by Bannerman and other people about Norman um, and 
Uh, also, a lot of the trade journals from that time in thing, places like Variety, Printers, Inc., Advertising Age, uh, New York Times, um, uh, Wall Street Journal, other places that had coverage of radio. Uh, and nearly every article that was about radio drama was about one of two authors. One is the horror author Arch Obler, and then the other ones were all about Norman Corwin uh, and Norman Corwin's broadcasts uh, mostly related to the war. So, so as, as you know, and as many people know, the uh, advantage about Norman's works is that they've almost always been in public circulation, um, and that's because they were in the public domain. Many of them were made uh, under the... Um, under the auspices of the War Information Office uh, and other uh, federal programs. So not only was Norman kind of the most famous author at the time of his recordings, of his radio work, but he's consistently remained so. Uh, And unlike a lot of other radio authors, his work has almost always been in print. So, you know, the the moment I got into old-time radio or got interested in classical radio as a research subject, Norman's work was the obvious and most important um, work that um, had been talked about at the time and had continued to be talked about since that time. And that's unusual in broadcasting history. In broadcasting history, uh, one of the problems with it is that it has no great institutional memory. Um, Most people who work in radio or work in the audio arts don't spend a lot of time studying the work of their forebears. And Norman is one of the few rare exceptions to that. Um, And so I got interested, when I got interested in these suspense serials, I started coming across Norman's work. He didn't write a lot of suspense serials, but a lot of the um, languages of American radio, uh, particularly dramatic radio, were invented in his programs of the late 30s and 1940s. And so I spent a lot of time, many years, um, studying his works and thinking about them and trying to situate them among similar works of the period. So The short answer is that, you know, if you're interested in classical radio, Norman's work is kind of the center of that world. And uh, it has remained so both in the in the archive and also in public memory. And you you mentioned 2005. Was your interest professional, academic? Yeah, it was academic. So when I came to graduate school, I did my my doctoral work at the University of Chicago. And when I came to graduate school, I didn't have a particular subject in mind. I was interested in the history of technology, the history of radio, the history of a lot of different things. And I started to get interested in radio drama, partly because around that time, there was a company, I think it still exists, called Radio Spirits, that was putting out these prestige editions on CD of kind of famous episodes of... Uh, the Shadow and Dragnet and shows like that. And you could still get a lot of them on cassette and places like that. And then what happened quite quickly around the same time that we're talking about, 2005, 2006, is that there was this revolution in the transformation of the archive from tape-based and and CD-based and transcription discs and electromagnetic tape and all these other formats, vinyl, uh, that it had been in for many years into MP3 formats. And so all of a sudden, you could study um, radio drama in a way that had never been done before. You know, if you wanted to write a book about radio drama in the 1980s or 1990s, you either had to have a huge collection on your, of your own or um, be, have a relationship with lots of other collectors or be located really near a gigantic archive. By the early 2000s, almost anyone could, could study tens of thousands of broadcasts, um, kind of from the comfort of their own iPod. 
it was kind of a conjunction of my academic interests in uh, radio drama and also a, a certain moment in the technology that made it possible to study it in a way that hadn't been done before. Many, many people have written histories of radio, but many of them didn't have recordings to work with. And so if you look at books from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s about the history of radio, most of them are about the history of regulation or ownership or the FCC, but not so much about the broadcasts themselves. So I, I liken it to... Imagine that there's a really great body of literature about the history of the publishing industry, but not a lot of literary criticism. Um, and so that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. And all of a sudden, around 2005, it became possible to do that from an academic point of view. Did you receive any pushback in terms of uh, this element of radio as worthy of academic study? No, quite the opposite. Um, I think in my field, people study really obscure and unusual things. Um, and sometimes they're of interest only to themselves. But one of the advantages of studying radio drama to me is that, you know, if, if when I give papers at conferences and I tell people we're going to listen to some episodes of The Shadow, I feel like I've just told them they can have ice cream for breakfast. You know, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, people have this built-in affection for the medium uh, and nostalgia. Now, part of me wants to, you know, push back against that nostalgia a little bit and, and say, okay, well, I know you have these warm, happy feelings about the medium, but let's also take it seriously as an art form that has, you know, complexity and technique. Um, and let's pay attention to that. Uh, and it, it always felt like a bit of a magic trick to say, you know, these images you have in your mind, a lot of these dramatists developed a practice to put it there and they've successfully tricked you into believing you've come up with it yourself. What do you recall about contacting Norman Corwin directly uh, for the first time? So I knew that Norman was still alive and I'd, I'd heard some of the work that he'd done with Mary Beth Kirshner and, and other folks for NPR and, uh, you know, as well as stuff in his career with Firesign Theater, places like that. And I knew he was still kind of technically on the faculty at USC Annenberg. And I was at uh, a conference actually in England, in Canterbury, and I ran into um, a colleague of mine named Nick Cull. And he said, you know, Norman, you know, we hear from him some, from time to time and, and I can give you his, his contact information. You should, you should talk to him. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a great idea. You know, to be honest, a lot of my practice is about listening. You know, I, my first book was based on something like 6,000 broadcasts or 6,000 recordings. And so I'm, I'm not really an interviewer, <laughs> you know, at least not by training. Uh, and so I felt a little bit intimidated by this. And so I, I reached out to him about a year or two later, and we had three or four conversations where I kind of put to him some of my hypotheses about his work. And then after a while, you know, it's, it started to be less about the book and just more about kind of our own common interests. One of Norman's friends was Carl Sandburg, and he uh, and he's one of my favorite writers as well, a great Chicago poet. And so he, he and I would talk a lot about Sandberg's um, poems. I remember the last time I talked to him, actually, I was um, I was moving and uh, he called me and he wanted to, I forget what poem it was, but he he was just, he just wanted to talk about a particular Carl Sandberg poem with me for a little while. So um, yeah, so I, I, I got in touch with him mostly to just kind of you know, check some of my ideas and say, you know, what is this? Does this make sense to you? I mean, there's certain aspects of his style that I thought were really particular to him. I wanted to know a little bit about how he thought about that. Well, let's get into the two books. Uh, the first book you did was Theater of the Mind. 
And let me ask you, what led you to write Theater of the Mind, and in particular, uh, where you emphasize uh, Corwin's work? I got interested in the, the Theater of the Mind project began sort of, sort of out of a lot of the... Um, a lot of the thoughts and plans and ideas that I mentioned earlier, um, part of my own interests in the history of radio, the history of technology, the history of theater. Um, and I just felt like no one had really written like a, a big direct book on how radio plays work. You know, there's lots of books about how movies work and how theater works and how novels work. But there wasn't really a big historically informed book about how, um, how radio works, at least radio drama. Now, I don't mean to say that, like, there aren't lots of great thoughts about it and, and good writers, just that mine was going to have a bunch of examples <laughs> drawn from this one particular corpus. And so it was going to be much more observational than than something that someone who practices the form. Partly, like I said, I, I had access to this huge archive. I could develop a corpus of material across the 30s, 40s, and 50s that helped tell stories about how... You know, for example, the detective genre changed over that time. Also about the rise of suspense serials and why they happened at a certain time and not another time. And so those are the kinds of questions I got interested in, but it was really an inductive approach. I just spent a ton of time listening to broadcasts and making notes about them and then trying to figure out interconnections between them across genre and across time. And so Norman's work um, became kind of the solution to one of the problems that I, one of these problems that I set out for myself. In Radio studies, we often call radio the theater of the mind. And what we mean by that, we mean that it seems to us as listeners that we're inventing all of the material and all of the scenes ourselves and that the makers had little to do with it. So I think that's incorrect. I think the makers have a lot to do with it. I think that if a character is far away or close, or if a character is loud or quiet, or if a character uh, comes in and out, or if there are silences used, all of these are deliberate techniques that um, creators employed and thought through quite intelligently. And so part of my project was to push back on this notion that there was kind of no art to radio. And so Norman was a logical figure for that because he was the most famous radio artist of his, of his age. He was called the Eugene O'Neill of radio routinely in the press. And then the second question, the second problem that, um, Norm, that drove me to Norman's work, this historical phenomenon that happens in the 1940s, where in the middle of the 1940s, all of a sudden, an awful lot of American radio shows are, become very psychological, become very, um, about, very much about interior states and uh, madness and suspense and terror and fear and influence, and um, they just become very interiorized. And so I thought to myself, well, if, if these 1940s dramas are very interiorized, well, then what were the 30s dramas about? And that's the other question that led me to Norman. So these two aspects of the project, you know, how it is we think of, of about radio as an art form and what radio sounded like before these psychological thrillers, they both led me to Norman's work. Uh, and Norman's work helped me answer both of them. So one was to see how Norman thought about sound um, and how he used sound and structured his words around sound. And then the other was to say, well, Norman's plays aren't really interior at all, actually. They're big, broad, social tapestries of the country. Um, one of the things that, that led me to the conclusion that one of the things that happens in the 1940s is that these big, broad visions that someone like Norman Corwin embodied, um, they tended to get closed down and turned into interior visions instead. And so that was a historical change that I think the war brought about and that Norman's work really embodied. Well, that's something I wanted to, to ask you about because uh, the 
subtitle of Theater of the Mind is Imagination, Aesthetics, and American Radio Drama. And there's a portion in Theater of the Mind where you uh, quote Norman as talking about the unadorned human voice. And I'm wondering how that jives with the aesthetic of the big broadcast that he did. So Norman would often talk quite rhapsodically about, about the human voice. I remember him saying that, you know, um, sound was the most important medium. I forget the exact language, but it's like sound was the most important medium because it communicates the most beautiful thing, which is music. And um, words are the, you know, the, the most important writers are the ones who are just really good with words. And it doesn't really matter what else happens on the page. And I can see that. I mean, he, he was in many ways a poet and so many of his works relied on the the written word and the the, the 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 they play with words in this interesting way often a way that is underappreciated because playing with words on live radio is difficult and it shows a lot of skill that said you know he was one to adorn words he he was one to um create radio dramas where he dispersed words across large geographies. And so he would often have plays that had many rapid scenes that take place in many different places. It's true that these are unadorned words, but in another way, they're also, they also have this kind of vivid pace and um, representational quality that they get from the way they're situated in space and time. Norman was a writer, but he was also a director. And the way that he directed his dramas often were to create these really vivid and complicated images of space and time. And, uh, and so, you know, the word was his medium to do that, but it wasn't his only technique to do that. Tell me, you had written Theater of the Mind. How did that lead into the book Anatomy of Sound, Norman Corwin and Media Authorship? So in, in my field, in media studies, for a long time, the only game in town was this model of scholarship that's based on what's called auteur theory that many of your listeners will have heard of. And auteur theory is rooted in the idea that the director of a film is its most important figure. And so for a long time, most of what film studies was, was the study of the style of Hitchcock or Hawks or someone like that. And there are these figures who are uh, mid-century auteur figures, uh, often household names, so your Hitchcocks, your Orson Welleses, people like that. And the purpose of scholarship was to figure out what made their style so unique and particular to their aesthetic. Now, now that style of scholarship has kind of fallen away from favor. And one of the interesting things about Norman is that he would have been a likely candidate for that type of scholarship, but no one ever really wrote it. No one ever wrote a book about what is the Corwin-esque in the same way that they wrote about a book about you know, what is the, the Hitchcockian aesthetic or what is the Wellesian aesthetic. But he would have been a great candidate for it. He was a household name. He was the best known American radio dramatists. He's probably the best known American radio dramatist that will ever live. Um, but no one had ever done it. So I thought it would be interesting to like do a kind of an approach to him as an auteur, someone who had a unique aesthetic, but also one that kind of knocked around through different media. Uh, so rather than just talking about how he was so great at what he did, which is true, but to say, well, what were his early writings of poetry really about? What were those like? What about the experimental television shows he made in the 1970s? What about his collaborations with the Firesign Theater uh, and places like that? What about his influence on shows like Radiolab? Uh, there are all these other issues in Corwin's incredibly long career 
that pass through all these different media. So what if we could tell an auteur story using Norman that isn't just about one individual, but is really about a whole bunch of different industries as they changed over the course of the 20th century. He wrote for the stage, he wrote operettas, he wrote for radio, he wrote for movies, he wrote for TV. And so his career gives us this incredible opportunity to look at all of these industries through the prism of a a particularly canny and smart sound artist. My collaborator and I, uh, Jacob Smith, uh, Jake was interested in his UN broadcasts, and I was interested in his classical radio. So we thought, well, what if we could get a bunch of people together to write individual essays about these different phases in Norman's career uh, and, you know, innovate the way we study important auteurs like him. And so that was kind of the motivation that we that we went through. Uh, we were lucky enough to find really great authors who were also interested in Norman's work. And I think also because he had just recently passed, a lot of people were interested in talking about him and celebrating him. Um, one of the weird things, and I talk about this in the book, one of the weird things about Norman's career is that he outlived his own fame in a way that almost no one ever does. Uh, I mean, many of his the people who were influenced by him, Philip Roth, um, Ray Bradbury, Robert Altman, many of them passed before he did. Uh, and so there were kind of no great figures or fewer great figures than there would have been if he had passed away 10 or 15 years earlier. Uh, many of the people who remembered Norman Corwin's as a ma- Norman's Corwin's broadcasts as a matter of their own personal memory were already gone. Uh, and so that was a, an unusual situation to be in for like a really famed creator. Uh, and so our book, I think, was a, a way of marking the, the passing, at least from a scholarly point of view, um, that could fill in for, I think, some of the the lack of celebration and fanfare that I think would have attended his passing had he died years earlier. Well, and and you, like me, are probably aware of the longevity of the Corwin family. And uh, like me, we're probably hoping that Norman had many more years left uh, than the uh, hundred uh, plus that he had. There doesn't seem to be a great platform for classic radio at the moment, such as, for instance, Film Noir has with Noir Alley on Turner Classic Movies. Do you see something like that for classic radio on the horizon? I hope so. You know, I I, I think that like there, there's always been a kind of community of 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 lovers and appreciators. Um, going all the way back to the 1970s, collectors and uh, people who get together at different conferences and spurred back and places like that. Um, there's always been a group of people who uh, who appreciate classical radio drama. The thing I, I'd like to foster, or I'd, I'd hope to foster, and I try and do this with my students, um, and I know that there are other places that do it too, is for contemporary creators of audio fiction to really draw on the past in the way that artists in other media do. I mean, um, if, if you were a lyric poet or a, um, a painter of portraits or a filmmaker, people would expect your work to be full of allusions to previous works. That's one of the ways in which those media progress is by um, looking to their past and reinventing their past. And that's something that I really wish and hope and actually think that contemporary creators are doing more and more. They're saying to themselves, you know, if I want to find new ideas for an audio drama podcast, maybe the way to do that is to look to the past and not to look to movies and TV, for example. Can you give us an idea of who your students are? Are they looking for careers in audio theater? And, and what is the state of audio theater today? 
Well, that's a pretty big topic. Um, I think the state of audio theater is happening in a lot of different ways. Um, there's one strain of it that comes from, um, you know, a, a world that, that calls itself kind of audio fiction, which is more kind of experimental. Uh, someone like uh, Caitlin Prest at the Heart is a good example of that. Uh, there's a strain of it that's coming from kind of Hollywood, uh, you know, uh, large franchises. I have a, a friend who makes podcasts for Stitcher based on Marvel superheroes. Another one is coming from podcasting houses, um, uh, companies like Q Code and from Gimlet Media, where they've been producing podcasts like Homecoming and uh, Blackout. A lot of those are kind of auditions to become TV shows. Uh, and then during the pandemic, there's been quite a few um, uh, theater companies that have obviously been unable to perform uh, and have turned to audio drama as a way of expressing themselves during this crisis. So one of the things about audio drama right now is that there it's happening at a lot of different levels, some of them in the world of the arts and some of them in more commercial worlds. Um, but the more and more people listen, uh, the more and more there is material like this out there um, for them to find. You mentioned that there have been enthusiasts for a long time. Any groups or organizations in particular that you recommend for people interested in this subject? Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, Facebook groups like uh, old time radio researchers and, and folks like that. Um, I also work with the Library of Congress on a project called um, the Radio Preservation Task Force. Uh, which is looking to preserve endangered recordings around the country and to catalog them and, and, and let them be more used. There's also SpurredVac, uh, which for many years has been um, a, a kind of enthusiasts group, which is something that I think aud your audience members might be interested in. Um, and yeah, there's there's no shortage of people excited and interested in, in, in old-time radio. The question really is sort of how those... Um, how those groups kind of move forward and whether or not they are interested in appreciation or creation. Um, I really think that listening should evolve and listening should always change and groups should always uh, grow at their own pace. And so one of the things that old time radio teaches us is that listening is a complex activity. Listening as a society is one of the ways in which um, we imagine ourselves to be part of a community. A lot of Norman's plays are about democracy and about the meaning of democracy, particularly in the New Deal era and the, in the, the wartime crisis. And so it's, it's about big ideas on one level, but it's also about community. Are there any other specific Corwin programs that you recommend for listeners? Yeah. Uh, so if you're, if you're get, just getting into Norman's work, you should listen to the 26 by Corwin series, which you can find at uh, ODR Cat, um, probably on the uh, Internet Archive, various other places. That's where many of his first scripts were produced. It was a huge amount of work for him. Whenever I interviewed him, he often talked about just the intensity of the labor. Uh, the Odyssey of Runyon Jones is a favorite. The Plot Against Christmas. Um, oh, uh, I think and The Undecided Molecule is a really good metaphorical farce that's uh, enjoyable and, and I think really communicates his love for language. Um, his American in England series is a, a really excellent work of narrativized audio journalism. I think those are some of the things that I think people should check out if they're just getting into his work for the first time. That's, that's wonderful. Those Those are all great choices. Uh, Neil, any new projects that you have in the works that you want to mention? Um, uh, thanks for, for asking. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really interested in podcasting these days. And so I'm, I'm quite interested in, 
in some of the um, the shows that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and I'm just working, trying to understand what is this particular historical moment right now. Uh, you know, I, in some ways, it's a lot easier to study the past because everything is done, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, the archive changes, definitely, but it doesn't change as quickly as the present does. So I'm having a bit of a struggle to keep up with all the creative work that's being put out. But I, right now, I'm writing a book that's kind of focusing on the five years in podcast aesthetics since um, since Serial, so from about 2014 to about 2019. So between sort of the advent of the narrative journalism that we're interested in now and the COVID crisis, I just feel like that's a good chunk of time that I could hopefully write something interesting about. So that's what I'm working on. Um, the other thing I'm doing is I'm editing a, a, a journal called the Radio Doc Review that your listeners might be interested in. Uh, and the Radio Doc Review focuses on international documentaries, usually creative documentaries, um, that we try and curate the best things that are being made in a variety of different languages and give people a chance to read good, vivid criticism about it. And again, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to me about Norman Corwin. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for doing a show about him. I mean, I really feel like Norman is this incredibly, this incredible treasure in American history, and there's no one really like him, uh, and there'll never be another one. And so I really think, um, you know, his work is really worth diving deep into and spending a lot of time with. And, um, and it's a really rewarding, uh, exciting body of material that I hope a lot of people will engage with. After a short break, I'll return and look at some of Norman Corwin's work from his 75th birthday to his 100th birthday, when Where Have You Gone, Norman Corwin continues. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast, or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. Let's look at the quarter century, 25 years, between Norman Corwin's 75th birthday and his 100th birthday, long after he was the poet laureate of radio. By 1985, Norman Corwin was the grand old man from the golden age of radio. On his 75th birthday, he was honored by the University of Southern California School of Journalism and the likes of Ray Bradbury, Studs Terkel, Charles Kuralt, Norman Lear, Jerome Lawrence, and Robert E. Lee, the writer, not the general, and with a book titled 13 for Corwin. For the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, Corwin wrote 50 years after 14 August, a new piece for National Public Radio. Corwin wrote 14 August for VJ Day, Victory Over Japan, at the end of World War II. 
that program had been rushed, and Corwin was much more satisfied with the 1995 version, narrated by Charles Corralt, with Pat Carroll playing the historian. In 1996, Corwin's stage play, Together Tonight, Jefferson, Hamilton, and Burr, was redone in an audio play format for NPR's series, More by Corwin. The cast included Lloyd Bridges as Alexander Hamilton, Jack Lemon as Aaron Burr, William Shatner as Thomas Jefferson, and Martin Landau as Mr. Lennox. The Curse of 589 was broadcast on NPR in March 1997. The cast included Shatner, Samantha Egger, and Carl Reiner. Our Lady of the Freedoms and some of her friends was revived in July 1997 from a Corwin essay celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty. The Secretariat was broadcast on NPR in November 1997 with a cast led by Shatner, Hume Cronin, and his daughter Tandy Cronin. And lastly, there was Memos to a New Millennium, broadcast on NPR on December 31, 1999, narrated by Walter Cronkite, with music by Elmer Bernstein. The scripts to all of these radio plays are available in a book titled Memos to a New Millennium, The Final Radio Plays of Norman Corwin, edited by Michael James Casey, with a foreword by William Shatner in 2011. As I wrap up this first episode of Where Have You Gone, let's do a little virtual shopping at a popular online marketplace. You might be surprised how much material created by or featuring Norman Corwin is readily available today. Some of it's already been mentioned, but there are also holes at a stained glass window a collection of essays by Corwin from 1978, Trivializing America, probably my favorite Corwin book, as topical now as it was when it was published in 1983, Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio by Ken Burns in 1991, one of his shorter documentaries, but it's excellent, and Corwin gets it off to a fast start talking about sound, Radio and Magic. Corwin, a film by Les Guthman, produced by the University of Southern California School of Journalism in 1996. A Note of Triumph, The Golden Age of Norman Corwin, the 2008 Academy Award-winning documentary by Eric Simonson. The L.A. Theater Works production of Norman Corwin's The Rivalry, starring Paul Giamatti as Stephen A. Douglas and David Strathairn as Abraham Lincoln from 2009. Also from 2009, One World Flight, The Lost Journal of Radio's Greatest Writer, edited by Michael C. Keith and Marianne Watson, with a foreword by Norman Lear. One World Flight was a 13-part series on CBS Radio in 1947, and it deserves to be revisited today. Most, if not all, of the episodes can currently be found on the Internet at archive.org.
org. Norman Corwin's Centennial from 2010, a collection of 18 episodes of Corwin's work released by Radio Spirits. Harder to find but worth hunting for are three collections of Corwin's scripts published in the 1940s. And if you go to the old-time radio catalog, otrcat.com, you can purchase the Norman Corwin collection of 120 shows on three MP3 discs. There's also the world of Carl Sandburg, Corwin's stage production, featuring the work of the subject of the next episode of Where Have You Gone? Alan Eckhouse and I met Norman Corwin after Alan started school at the University of Southern California. We struck up a friendship and remained friends with him until his death in 2011. It was a wonderful and too brief a time, and I have very cherished memories of time spent with Mr. Corwin, of projects discussed and started, and somehow or other, leading to the creation of this podcast. For those of you who already know of Corwin and his work, and have enjoyed it in its various forms, you may not need me to remind you that one of the great ways to spend time is listening to a Corwin production or reading some of his work. For those of you who are new to Norman Corwin, you now know of a vast treasure of entertainment and usually thought-provoking entertainment. There you have it, the first episode of Where Have You Gone? I hope you have enjoyed it and will join me for the next episode when I ask Where Have You Gone, Carl Sandburg? I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo is by Jeff Santala. Special thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. For more information about Where Have You Gone?, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company.